This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This is CT Media. Well, welcome to Being Human. This is the podcast where we help you relax into being human size. We help you notice when you are disconnected from yourself, from your people, when you're disconnected from awareness of God. Many of us, we get bigger or smaller than human, and that's what disconnects us when we try to do things on our own steam and we forget that God is with us. Today, I'm joined in the studio with my good friend, Jimmy Carnes. Hi, Jimmy. Hey. Been on the show before. Yes, sir. I've been excited about today's episode because we did a conference last fall, and it was actually around this topic of how to help people connect, notice when they're disconnected. And we had all kinds of people come in and give all kinds of ways to unlock kind of where they're stuck. And you brought a way that I've never seen before that's somewhat based on Enneagram. Mm -hmm. I think what happens when people hear Enneagram, it can be like some people get excited. Some people get, they're like, nope, I'm going to tune out. And then I think some people would immediately say, oh, I've heard that before. Just give us a taste of how you got into Enneagram and we'll start the journey. So I started learning the Enneagram several years back, but just before that was when I started learning the tools that we teach on Capable Life. And it was like a key or an un a way that unlocked a way of seeing things that helped me understand the very things I was looking for with these tools of what is it that makes me anxious? What motivates me? What do I feel like I need that I don't actually need? And so I learned the Enneagram right around the same time as learning that stuff. And so I've always looked at it as a tool that can be used to help us see what's going on in us you mentioned some people get turned off, but I think that's because we use it to pigeonhole somebody else. Yeah. You know, we use it to say, oh, you wouldn't understand me because you're this number and I'm this number, or it yeah. just is what it is. Yeah. That stuff really bothers me. And so I've been, with the work that I've been doing with it, is really looking at it as a tool, how it can be used to show how we're alike as much as mm. it is something that makes us unique. Mm. You share some characteristics with every other number on the Enneagram. And so mm -hmm. the general sense is that I just use it as a tool that can help us be free. So what's interesting is today, we're actually not going to talk overtly about numbers. Those of you who maybe uh, know your Enneagram number, or maybe you're not sure, what we're mostly going to talk about is things like basic desires of humans, mm -hmm. how they get in the way of the gospel, how you can notice your basic desires, your grievances, You've done a lot of research, but you've really collated something that I've never seen anywhere else. Hmm. And that's these kind of six categories. So if you don't mind, let's just jump in. Yeah. The first thing you start with is the holy idea. What is a holy idea? I think that the simplest way to look at a holy idea is it's the way that the Enneagram describes the thing that kind of drives our personality. Our personalities form because of a particular holy idea that we have disconnected with. 
So some people call them the nine faces of God. And so they're descriptions of like a perfect reality or a perfect being or this perfection and ideal. When we lose sight of it or we find a disconnection with it, it kind of drives the way that we respond every day. So we all have different personalities. Are are you saying that obviously God is perfect and complete, but we're all striving for one aspect of God to be true? If I can just list the holy ideas, Mm. that would probably be best. Uh, Let's see if I can get them right, because there's nine of them. There are nine. Truth, love, perfection. Oh, they're right there. Yeah, we have them conveniently written down. Will, hope, origin, omniscience, faith, and plan. You don't need to keep all those words in your head, but the reason why I say them all is that it's really difficult to describe one without kind of talking about all of them. Yeah. But those would be all things that are characteristics of God. God is true. He is loving. He's perfect. So on and so forth. And so when we try and achieve these things, obviously we can't. You know, if somebody is after perfection like me, I hate even the word perfection because I know how unattainable it is. Mm. But I definitely know that that's something that I desire and it's something that you know, it's like, man, if things could just be ideal or perfect, then what would we have to complain about? Yeah, you, you could know? relax. Yeah. Okay. And so, so I'm identified as an Enneagram 3. What would be my holy idea then? So yours is hope. Hope for? I mean, this is where it's interesting is that explaining them outside of each other is difficult, yeah. but it's it's the hope of God that a good, the first three are about God, truth, love, and perfection, that a loving, true, and perfect God mm the hope that he has a will or a plan that we come from him origin like it's it's they're all interconnected purpose is connected to yeah, that yeah that, okay. that he has a plan for us and that we can hope in the goodness and perfection of god so this first thing you explore is the holy idea what do we kind of long for one of the things i love is you connect it to god's story in the bible what would be the part of god's story that the holy idea is connected to yeah so that's the garden yeah, Garden of Eden. Yeah, when we created everything and things were ideal. First two chapters, not so much chapter three. <laughs> right, right. It's coming, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, take us to the second idea. If the first idea is the holy idea that in its essence, this is these good things we long for. What comes next? Yeah, so the next is a basic fear and a basic desire. Okay. If in the garden, you know, we're connected with God and Adam and Eve were able to walk and commune with him, when they were kicked out of the garden, there was a disconnection between humans and God. And in the same way, as we disconnect from our particular holy idea, it drives a basic fear and then intrinsically connected to that as a basic desire. So they both go hand in hand. For instance, a perfectionist like me, my basic fear is to be bad or that I'm defective in some way. Yeah, when you say bad, you don't mean morally bad, you mean broken? Right. Okay. Yeah, it's actually both. I mean, it's insidious, right? Okay. It's, it's that if perfection is the holy idea that I've lost connection with, then it's like, right, I want to be good. I want to be right. I want to be perfect. And so I'm afraid that if that's not true, there's something missing, that I'm broken, that I'm defective or bad, yeah, even morally bad. So as an Enneagram 3, my basic fear would be? Your basic fear on the three is that you're worthless or invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about there's an obscure movie uh, with Steve McQueen called Papillon. And at the end of his life, he's a criminal and he's tried for all these crimes. But at the end of his life, when he faces God, the judgment comes down. God says, you are guilty. And he's like, oh, I know I'm guilty. I've been a criminal. And God says, no, you're guilty of a worthless, wasted life. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's a 
movie that any Enneagram 3 don't really need to be watching, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, that's so interesting because somebody like me would be just upset that I'm not good enough or right, yeah. you know, more than being wasteful, even though that's yeah. a driver of mine. It's, it's, it's secondary, right? Yeah, it's, I would rather be a criminal and make a difference. Right, you'd rather be wrong. Yeah, so what's the difference between a basic fear and a basic desire? The basic fear is derivative of, you know, losing connection of our holy idea. So we're driven by these basic fears. And usually the basic desire is the thing that you think you can do to avoid the fear being reality. So if I'm afraid of being defective or bad, then my basic desire is to be good or to be right, to try and avoid my fear. I mean, one of my childhood vows when I was a kid was the Enneagram helped me uncover this is that I created expectations of myself that I thought were higher than what anybody else would expect of me. Yeah. So I could avoid shame and condemnation when I broke those, because at least if I was shooting for something higher than was expected of me, then I wouldn't let them down. Of course that doesn't work, but yeah. that's, yeah, it's all driven by this fear of like, oh man, I need to make sure it's, it's that same thing. If I can just do these things and I won't have to feel this disappointment of the thing I'm afraid of becoming yeah, this reality. This sounds a lot to me like an attempted solution. It's oh, yeah. like the human workaround yeah. rather than, this is where we're really getting interesting of why don't we relax into God's presence? It's because we're all doing these various workarounds to make sure we and the world are okay. Yeah, and if we don't see them, then it's really difficult to shake them. I've been around Enneagram 2s, for example, mm -hmm. and just for those who maybe aren't as familiar improve what I'm about to say here, but okay. it's like they anxiously want to make sure you, they're helping you. Would mm -hmm. that be fair? Or how would you say that? The basic fear of a two is to be unloved. And so their basic desire is to be loved. And the way that they go about earning that love is to be helpful. Be helpful. Yeah. So it's like, man, I'm going to be helpful to the people around me so that they will show me love and affection. All of the, the threes, the twos, and the fours all have this like projected image of themselves that they think is worthy of being loved or have an affection uh, given to them. We're trying to manage your experience of us by projecting a false self in a sense. Yeah, so affection and esteem would be the kind of group that you mm -hmm. would be a part of. And so when you're going after affection and esteem as a three, the performer you do that by succeeding or being worthwhile or valuable. Yeah. Wow. I've never heard it that way before. Oh, haven't you? That's that kind right. Of stuff. Yeah. 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 So oh, you're... it's from the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas a two is going after the same thing, but does it a little bit differently and does it like, hey, if I'm there to help you, then of course you're going to show me love because of the way that I help. When I travel and speak, sometimes the person assigned to help me is a two. And I can tell because I'm feeling the anxiety that they need to feel like they've made a difference to me. And it might be that like the thing I need is simple, like a bottle of water or a microphone. But is that the microphone you want? Like, I don't care, any microphone's fine. <laughs> right. But it's like, I need to help them feel helped. Mm -hmm. And then I think where this gets really keen for twos, I'd be curious if other numbers struggle with this. When you've got a loved one that's really hurting, maybe they've, they're grieving, mm -hmm. man, you have to be so careful as a two or as driven by help that you're not, putting your anxiety on that person when they're already carrying a heavy load. Yeah. Enmeshment and detachment is this idea of when somebody's grieving, whatever this thing that we want is, for twos, it's help, is that because we're anxious, we actually want to satisfy that need. And it actually 
becomes less about that person, you know, and the person who's grieving ends up having to manage all of these anxious people around them when they, you know, obviously don't have a lot in the tank to manage people with. It's pretty humbling for me to take inventory of my life and think about all the things I did that I thought were for other people (laughs) were actually to fulfill some need in myself. This basic fear and basic desire to me really starts to get to, Oh yeah. without Jesus, I am a lost human. Okay, so we have holy idea is connected to the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. Therefore, basic desire and basic fear. That's the tree. So when we Genesis 3. Yeah, when we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we then needed to filter everything versus good and bad. And so the one, the the perfect number on the Enneagram, of (laughs) course, it aligns perfectly. You know, I want to be good and I'm afraid of being bad. But really, all of the basic fears and desires are in that good-bad thing. The bad side for the three we just talked about was being not valuable. And so the good side of that was to be valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can take all the fears and desires and filter them through this good and bad scenario. Is if God is no longer, you know, we're not in the garden, we need to, I guess, be gods ourselves and Mm -hmm. take on God-sized jobs. We're afraid that these things that were provided for us in the garden, namely God was in control, that God provided for us, like he kept us safe and secure and he loved us. Those are Thomas Keating's programs for happiness, the things we pursue. So when that happened, we now have this list of desires that kind of fulfill those things that means that we're good. And then the fear is the bad side of that column. So it all attaches to the tree. It's when fear, shame, and anger all entered the world. Yeah, I think it's Greg Boyd that says that humans were never designed to know as much as we know. Yeah. And that the tree of good and evil, if I'm remembering Boyd, I'm pulling it a bit out of my head. I think he says it's fundamentally about judgment. Mm -hmm. And God is the judge. Is this related, Jimmy, that we now take the role of judge and decide what's good and what's evil and... What must I do to be good? A hundred percent. I mean, with the ones we've already talked about so far, we're judging that you're not valuable if you don't, yeah. or a two can't get affection. They aren't loved if they don't help. Yeah. A one or a perfectionist isn't good if there are things that are broken or things that I haven't fixed or improved or reformed. So absolutely. I mean, the, the temptation in the garden was you can be like God. Yeah. And so now we have some of the skill sets of God, because in Genesis it says, behold, man has become like us, knowing the difference between good and evil. And then the paraphrase is, quick, let's kick him out of the garden so they don't live forever yeah. in this state. And yeah. un- we weren't designed to have some of the skill sets of God without the rest of the God-sized abilities to like judge with that knowledge set. That's fascinating. A, a lot of what we teach is one of the reasons you're reactive is when you're carrying more than God asked you to carry. And so yeah. this, we're starting to see this here. Totally. Okay. So we began with holy idea. We moved into basic desire and basic fear. That's three of the six. What's the next one? The next one is a, what I call a good pursuit. And yeah. it's kind of a reframing of the basic desire, but it really has more to do with these things that we do to try and make sure that we are in that good column or that we're loved or we're in control or that we're safe. For me, what I do to try and be good is I fix and reform. My good pursuit, it's a good thing. Tim Keller says a good thing that you make an ultimate thing is an idol. It's very much this good thing that you can see, especially in in kind of unhealthy versions of all of these numbers 
they've taken a good thing and they've made it an ultimate thing. They have have to have it. Yeah. Have you met somebody that tries to fix everything, you know, especially other people and circumstances that it's not the right time? Or he talked about somebody grieving, oftentimes perfectionists find somebody who's grieving. They want to fix it. They want to make it better. And they don't let them sit in a time of grief, which is very necessary. They want to move them through the process too soon. And that's being driven usually by this this good, good thing pursuit that they've made ultimate. I think we've used this before in the show, but we talk about people who were raised in the church, particularly if they were in some kind of pastoral ministry as a family. They, they would say something like, we were there every time the doors were open. Yeah. Sounds like a good thing. Might be a good thing. Could also be a total exhausting stronghold. Yeah. Every time someone's in need, I'm, I need to be there, kind of over-responsibility. Totally. How would this fit for like an Enneagram 7? Like some of our watchers and listeners are like, come on, get to my number. Right. And by the way, we, we want to relax you now. We will touch on each number for those of you who are Enneagram aficionados. But a 7, what's the good pursuit of a 7? Uh, it's adventure and enjoyment. Yeah, that's why you want to be around them. That's right. They're fun people. You know it's going to be a good time if yeah. you're around them. Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing a social experiment with sevens. It feels like life tends to work out for them more than the rest of us. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually. What would a seven's basic fear be? So the basic fear would be to be trapped in pain or deprivation. That's the challenge with a seven, right, is they can actually experience a lot of pain And are they using adventure and fun to ignore the pain? Broad brushstroke answers here, right? There are nuances to all this, but their basic fear is being trapped in pain and deprivation. Their basic desire is to be satisfied. It's like, oh man, what if I don't take advantage of this good thing, it'll go away and I won't be satisfied. There's no guarantee that I'm going to be satisfied. So I'm driven to do, you know, adventure and enjoyment to satisfy, which is, I mean, again, a good thing. It's, yeah. it's what brings fun and enjoyment to them and the people that are around them. But their basic fear is that if they don't pursue that like the Dickens, then they might be trapped in a state where they can't be satisfied. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O ct.com slash will and for a limited time you can get 10% off that's morect.com slash will what I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood a few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin we launched Promised Land 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Okay, so then you connect in in the Bible story. We have God creating and it is good. And then we have the tree and the fall of humans. And then this idea of of a God pursuit is... The law. Yeah, Moses. This all came because of a pursuit to teach kind of these concepts in the Enneagram and put them in a framework that I could wrap my mind around. Yeah, They all just fell into this story that I, of course, knew really well. And so this good pursuit column falls under the law because... When God gave the law to his people, it really was how to be good enough to be in my kingdom. But he knew that they couldn't do it, right? And so even from day one, there was a sacrifice system for when you fell short. Because it's like, you're not going to do this. You're not going to measure up. It's going to be that elusive thing that nobody can do it quite perfectly. But it's still something worth pursuing. It wasn't like... You just woke up and you're like, oh, I'm not going to do any of these commandments. So, but it's okay. You know, the sacrifice is coming. Yeah. I'll just wait and sacrifice. Another another sheep. Yeah. And Paul, of course, talks about this with the new covenant of should we just go on sinning so that Jesus can. It's the same idea, right? Of like, it's no, no, this is what you're supposed to do. They're commandments. They're not suggestions. This is what you need to do to be good. So it really gets to this heart of, okay. I'm supposed to do this thing, but I'm never going to be able to do it. Okay, so we have the law, and so these good pursuits, this to me is really the heart of the work we're doing. We are trying to help people notice their well-meaning proclivities and how those well-meaning proclivities are eating them alive. Mm. And how, in my case at least, how often I'm using these proclivities in the name of Jesus. God wants me to blank. Right. And God's like, keep me out of it. Like I (laughs) I am nowhere to be found in this endeavor of yours. Yeah. Let's talk about an Enneagram eight. I mean, I could see their good pursuit would have to be justice. What would you call it? Yeah, truth and justice is what they're pursuing. It's pretty amazing. I've I've known some eights that force me to not just care, but sacrifice for some cause that really matters. Truth is their holy idea, by the way. It's the thing that they've lost connection with that they want very badly. And I know a lot of eights that are just very good at sniffing out BS. Yeah. And it's not even about like, aha, it's more of like, man, if you just let me know what you really want, we can move forward. Yeah. Like if you're going to dance around, you know, the fluid talkers, they usually struggle with fluid communicators Yeah, because they're just like, man, that's not what you mean. Don't be disingenuous. And it's not about another number on the Enneagram 4 
which is interested in being original or true to themselves, it's not quite the same. It's more of like, hey, we need to uncover the truth because the truth is good. I'm still learning to work with some eights that are not as aware. I've been in situations where they suddenly discover in a public setting that they're actually wrong Mm. and they just shut down. Like suddenly it's like they're so full of shame. Yeah. And we're like, no, no, it's fine. We all do this. But for them, it's like game over. Yeah. Just have to opt out because they're so sure they're right. And it's not an arrogance. I mean, it might be an arrogance, but it is like a basic fear, right? Like that's the nightmare for them. Yeah. I mean, it's their singular pursuit. Usually, yeah. you know, it could be buried and they don't maybe would name it that way of like, oh, I wake up every day and pursue truth. Yeah. But as you talk to an A and you figure out the things that really make them reactive, you're like, oh, there it is. It's yeah. like it's you were hunting for truth or reality. Okay. Let's talk about a nine before we move on to the next okay. category. What would be the basic desire and the basic fear of a nine? Yeah. So the basic desire is to be at peace. Okay. The basic fear is to be lost or fragmented. And it's so tough with these words to just put a few words in there because yeah. sometimes they won't resonate, you know, with everybody who would call themselves a nine. But in a general sense, they usually avoid conflict. Conflict avoidance, most nines would be like, yeah, yeah, that's me. Their holy desire, uh, holy idea is love, which is very all-encompassing, but yeah. it's kind of like this idea of, let's say we were in a relationship But that almost like I treat that as being more fragile than it actually is, and it can't handle a disagreement. And so if we're in a disagreement, I'm afraid that I will be lost or our relationship will be fragmented because of that conflict. And so they generally will appease or try and do something to make things at peace or harmony because they value the relationship. Yeah. So therefore, they can't say what they really think, for example, I struggle with this as a pastor. I mean, I'm not a nine. I know the three tends to, when I'm not well, I go into nine-ish behavior. I wrestle with this constantly as a pastor. When people are talking to me, just the natural job of a pastor, lots of people put their opinion on you. When do I tell them what I think? And when do I just listen because that's a pastoral role? That feels very nine-ish. And I'm trying to measure the quality of the relationship. Also, the idea that if they see me as a spiritual leader, I've got boxing gloves on. It complicates that, I think, is how to be authentic. I mean, all this stuff can be very nuanced and complicated. I think that's what some of the resistance is, is as you try and make it clear and simplistic so that people can wrap their heads around it, it loses some of the nuance that then they're like, oh, that's not true or whatever. But but really, as you zoom out, sometimes it can be really helpful because the, the whole holy idea for a nine love is this broad idea of God is in control and he's loving then there's this kind of big overarching, like, things are going to be all right. Yeah. But so much of that doesn't translate for us here on the ground when we go, wait a second, like, no, no, actually bad things do happen and relationships do get broken. And by being driven by that fear, it's like, well, not if I have something to say about it. You know, I'll try and make sure that things are okay. So Yeah, and a nine kind of reminds me of a duck that on the surface looks like everything's calm, Mm. but inside... Lots going on, right? The duck's paddling a lot under the surface. You you meet a nine and there's this relaxed energy where you're just welcome in. Yeah. But you don't realize that sometimes they need a nap after that. I mean, that's a great analogy, but I would say that some of those ducks just aren't aware of their feet at all. Okay, for the nine. Yeah, the feet are doing that for sure, but really it's like, that looks like that's not a good thing. So I'm going to keep my gaze yeah, okay. of, of, uh, above water. 
Basically. Yeah, our friend Andy Gallahorn says that the nine is not aware of their body. Yeah. Even such a simple thing as when to go to the bathroom. It's a That's fascinating right. little social experiment. Yeah, and as we pulled some nines, they're like, no. And then they're like, wait, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, actually. actually, I need to go right now. <laughs> really amazing moment. Oh, so good. Okay, so we have the garden, we have the tree, we have the law of Moses mm-hmm. handed down. And then, then, of course, in the gospel story, we have Jesus. And this really is the turning point where we can learn to notice these desires, these good pursuits, these fears, and we can actually learn, it's hard to do, but we can learn to give them all to God. Human beings can relax into the presence of Jesus because he died to free us from these false pursuits, and that leads us to what you call our grievance. Yeah. So now Jesus has died, and yet we forget So what's our grievance? The most pointed way to look at that is when Jesus actually did come. He came to redeem and restore all things, and people knew that the Messiah was coming, but their expectation of what he was going to accomplish was different. They missed Jesus because their expectations didn't align with what they saw. Yeah, they thought he would conquer the Roman Empire, for example. Yeah, hop on a horse and here we go, and and bring the reign of God to earth then— and of course, you know, we have the benefit of being this many thousands of years after the fact. And well, no, that's not what happened. And we can understand that he came to accomplish something different. It's really the same thing, but in a different way, right? Yeah. Yes, redeem and restore. But where we get confused is like, okay, well, Jesus conquered death and he made us all righteous in God's eyes. But still we, like Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And there's clearly this tension. Somebody who clearly knew who Jesus was is going like, ah, oh, what's this tension inside of me? And so the grievance is the column that I came up with, with these things that we see around us that are almost like evidence that either it didn't work, Jesus isn't real, or or it's, it's like, man, does does Jesus actually care as much as I do about these things? We're getting into some pretty fascinating territory of the work you've done that I've not seen anyone do with Enneagram. Because when I think of the basic desire, that makes sense. But when I think of a grievance, it gets really personal to my faith. Mm-hmm. So like as a chaplain and, and as a pastor, my grievance, whether it's related to my Enneagram number or not, is God can, but doesn't. Yes. It's like, come on, you can do this just in the way that the first century people expected Jesus to show up, the Messiah, we totally have these expectations on God. And it feels like we fall then into either deism, God doesn't care, or I love the way you said it, it's not working. Whatever God did isn't working. Yeah. How would that be, for example, for a four? Oh, yeah, the four is the most complex of all the numbers, but what they are... You love that, don't you, fours? Those (laughs) fours are like, yes, he sees me, he sees me. Their good pursuit is to be authentic or original or really true to their origin or, or nothing can be fake or false or pretentious. The grievance is that there's still missing value, that, for instance, people aren't seen, right? The world we live in, that you can have... What was that story about some really famous violin or cello player went to the subway in New York and yeah. played this multi-million dollar instrument? Joshua Bell played a Stradivarius in disguise yeah. in the New York subway. Yes. And no one recognized one of the greatest violinists of modern era. I'm not a four, but I would presume that fours would hear that and go, ugh. 
just really disgust in the fact that we missed this immense value because of these other things that are distracting us. And so that would be proof that things aren't still redeemed and restored. If God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we would see beauty and respond to it, but we don't. Okay. What about a five? A five? <laughs> you're hitting me with the hardest ones, Yeah, right? they are the Fours middle. I struggle with the middle the most to understand and explain. Well, they're those. just very complex human beings. I mean, we all are, but these they are pursuing knowledge and stewardship. And so a five is really interested in competency a five would feel like the world is after them and their resources. They wouldn't say it that way, but it's this kind of low-level anxiety that I need to be self-sufficient and protective of what I have because otherwise it just will drain. I'm definitely hearing it's on me to make sure I have what I need. Yeah. It's not on God for a five. Yeah, exactly. And so they do that, but it's not necessarily things. They're not, it's not that a five is a hoarder, mm. but a five would want to make sure that they are competent so that they don't need other people to succeed yeah, or to okay. be okay. Their grievance would be that waste and scarcity. The grievance is that there it just isn't enough it's to go enough. around. And right. there's plenty of evidence for that in this right. world. Yeah, exactly. People yeah. that go without food and, you know, resources are important and need to be stewarded well. Okay. So in our biblical narrative, we have the garden, we have the tree, the law, Jesus. What we're in now, various words for it, but this present age mm-hmm. is what you would call it. And it really is that we have a lot in common with the first century followers of Jesus where the promises of Jesus, we're looking for them to be fulfilled through our own assumptions. And therefore, we have a grievance that the world is not the way it should be if since Jesus did his work. But then Paul particularly starts to write about the age that is to come, and that leads us to the last category. That's the age we're in now. The promise has been given. The Holy Spirit is here, and actually God's called us to work and use our gifts and talents to usher the kingdom of heaven here. My favorite, I think, songwriter of all time would be Rich Mullins. Oh, yeah. And he talks about the new world started crashing into the old world. Yeah. And that's that same idea. And so, therefore, we have these longings. We have not yet talked about the Enneagram 6. Ah. What is the longing of a six? Let's start with a longing, and we'll go back through a couple of others as well. The longing for the six is that God guides and protects following it all the way back to the beginning of the story, the six, they're interested in safety and security. And so their basic fear is to uh, have no support or guidance. And so their basic desire is to have support. So your six, your stereotypical six would be somebody who's looking at worst case scenario. They're the person that is totally prepared. If you're going on a hike, right? They'll, They've they'll got everything you need. And more, usually. Yeah. 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 Right? Okay. It's like not just the things that you'll likely need, but the things you may unlikely need. The whole idea is if God were really guiding and protecting, then we don't need bear spray because God is over the bears and, you know, he can keep the bears from eating us. And mm. so it's another thing where he can, but why doesn't he is that tension uh, or the, the grievance and the long. So the grievance is that they would have to face problems alone. I'm sorry I'm giving so much info, but it feels like without it, it, the story doesn't seem to stitch itself together. What I love about what you've done, and by the way, you guys can go to Capable Life and we actually have your keynote Mm -hmm. where they can buy it if they want to see. And you do this start to finish. You've got a chart that you show. They can even download the chart, I think, if they do that. So we'll put a a link to that in the show notes for people who want to 
chase this idea a little more. But what I found so exhilarating about it is you've helped us kind of dissect what feels to me like an overwhelming feeling. Mm. So I can actually focus on what's my grievance? Like that was particularly one that helped me a lot. What do I long for? What's my fear? These give me things that I can give to God. And so your final step is, you call it Sabbath, Mm -hmm. it's lighting a candle. And so most of the time we do this at the beginning of the episode. But what we want to invite you to do, whether you're listening or watching, is just have a think about what do you wish God did better? Or maybe if that's hard for you to hear, what do you wish there was more of in the world because of God that there's not enough of? Mm. That might be a version of your grievance. What are you most afraid might be true And we're just going to actually light the candle in silence so that you can give those to God and and relax into the sovereignty of God, relax into God's presence. Just the simple recognition that, yes, we partner with God, but it's not all on us. That's what anxiety and reactivity tell us. The gospel of anxiety and reactivity says it's all on you. You have this wonderful illustration. I think Jimmy will close with this about event planning. Hmm. Tell us about that. How does that relate? Because some people might be hearing this and, you know, we use this language a lot on the podcast, relax into God's presence, be human-sized. And they might say, well, the world is still in trouble. Though God, We are God's army. God is deploying us to help. Tell us a bit about what you mean by event planning and the difference between different things there. As I try and put my finger on, how do I know whether I'm showing up or doing something Like I'm picking up the slack for God. My pursuit is to fix and reform. I'll always fix and reform. I'm good at it. Mm. But oftentimes when that's my ultimate thing and I'm trying to do it to be righteous, there's just all of this weight and anxiety that comes with it. And usually I wait to offset that or dump it when I'm just exhausted. I can't, I think we talked about it last week about just handing the baton to God and saying, oh, you got to go from here because I can't anymore. So the idea of event planning is that when I'm working at an event where a trusted leader of mine is running it. It's a totally different energy. It's like I show up and I'm like, hey, what do you want me to do? I don't have the weight of all the pressures that come with that, and I can freely do the things that I'm good at and try and help the thing move forward. Then I think about the events where I'm the top dog or I'm the person in charge or I'm the one that has to get everything straight it's a totally different weight that you carry. No same skill sets maybe that I'm using of my own, even if I'm at an event where it's mine to run, if I can remember that I'm actually not at the top, yeah. God is still God and I'm not. Yeah. It can help me enter into this partnership in a way that actually is more productive versus waiting until I get exhausted and thinking that my only option is to like, oh, I can't fix and reform, so I'm just going to take a nap. We kind of think that it's either or. I must be driven to do these things or I'll be like all those people that I judge. There's a middle ground. I found that really helpful, that metaphor, because this podcast, before it was being human, it was managing leadership anxiety. The podcast was mostly for faith leaders who tend to feel over-responsible. And as you were sharing that metaphor of event planning, it made me think of, okay, I've been ministry 27 years. 11 of those years or 10 of those years were some kind of an associate role in a church. Somebody else was the so-called top dog. And what's interesting is those job descriptions were more intense than lead pastor. What's written on the job description was less intense, but the pressure I carried was like 
10 times more intense. Yeah. I remember being really surprised by it. Like, where's all this anxiety coming from? In fact, that feeling was what gave birth to my book. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, why am I feeling so uh, anxious? And I think simply put, I'd forgotten that there was someone above me. Yeah. Carry more weight than God asked me to carry. And a lot of it is what you've laid out for us today is the things that I was longing for and grievances and so on. I love that this has become what it has because you actually don't need to know. The Enneagram is so deep. You can really go a long way with it. But to find relief in some of these things, you actually don't need to do that. Really just latching on to some of these desires or longings or grievances can help wake you up to this idea that God is still God. It's like a perspective if we could just really... This relaxing into the goodness of God isn't quitting or like sitting in the corner and not doing any work. It's doing the things that God has gifted you Human to do. Human-sized work. Yeah, yeah, with this comfort that it's not all on your shoulders. Mm. Okay, folks. So whether you're watching or listening, what we're going to encourage you to do this week is out of these different steps, these kind of six ways of looking at it, maybe just focus on what's a basic desire of yours, what's a basic fear or what's a grievance that you have. You don't have to get it perfectly right, particularly those of you who are still getting the hang of this. Just spend some time with God and say, "What? how do I wish the world was and how do I wish people saw me? And okay, how do I give that to God and go back to being human-sized, which is what we believe is when we're fully alive, free, flourishing, what Scripture calls shalom. So that's the homework. Jimmy, thanks for joining on Being Human today. Thanks for having me. Being Human is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced and edited by Matt Stevens. The associate producers are Mackenzie Hill and Ray Gilliam, with music by Dan Phelps, mix engineer Kevin Morris, and graphic design by Amy Jones. 